Chapter 4. Pulmonology. Topic 6. Plural Disorders. Let's begin with a basic understanding of the plural anatomy. The lungs aren't just floating freely in our chest cavity. They're secured in place and protected by an intricate system known as the pleura. The pleura is a double-layered lining that adheres to the lungs and the chest wall. The inner layer, known as the visceral pleura, closely wraps around the surface of the lungs and fissures between the lobes. Transitioning outward from the visceral pleura is the pleural cavity. This is essentially a potential space filled with a tiny amount of lubricating pleural fluid, allowing the two pleural layers to slide effortlessly over each other as we breathe. Then we come to the outer layer, the parietal pleura, which lines the inside of the chest wall, covers the diaphragm, and also covers the side of the mediastinum. Next, we will transition to our first pleural disorder, pneumothorax. This is when air enters the pleural space. This condition comes in two main forms. There's the spontaneous pneumothorax, which, as the name suggests, happens unexpectedly, usually due to the rupture of an air-filled sac or bleeb on the lung surface. Attention pneumothorax, on the other hand, is a more severe and life-threatening form where the air continues to accumulate with each breath, causing increasing pressure on the lungs and heart, and eventually hemodynamic collapse. Let's talk about some of the risk factors for developing a pneumothorax. These include underlying lung conditions like emphysema, interstitial lung disease, pneumonia, asthma, and bronchiectasis. Smoking significantly increases the risk. A rare genetic condition known as Marfan syndrome can also predispose individuals, particularly tall, young, and otherwise healthy males, to pneumothorax due to the presence of apical lung blebs. Trauma, such as a rib fracture or a penetrating wound, is another common cause, as well as certain medical procedures like central line placement, mechanical ventilation, and lung biopsies. There's also a rare lung disease called lymphangioleomyomatosis, which can increase the risk. Signs and symptoms of a pneumothorax typically include sudden onset of acute shortness of breath and chest pain. On examination, decreased breath sounds may be noticed on the affected side. In cases of tension pneumothorax, there may also be signs of hemodynamic instability, which include rapid heart rate, low blood pressure, and altered mental status. To diagnose a pneumothorax, clinicians rely on the patient's history, physical examination findings, and imaging, usually a chest x-ray. The x-ray might show a visible visceral pleural line indicating the separation of the lung from the chest wall, decreased lung markings due to the presence of air, and in cases of tension pneumothorax, there could be contralateral deviation of the trachea and mediastinum, as well as flattening of the affected hemidiaphragm. Management of a pneumothorax largely depends on its size, the patient's underlying health, and the severity of their symptoms. A small, simple pneumothorax in an otherwise healthy adult with mild symptoms may only require supplemental oxygen and observation. Larger pneumothoraces, or those in patients with moderate to severe symptoms, usually require a chest tube to be placed. This allows the air to be drained from the pleural space and the lung to re-expand. Attention pneumothorax being a medical emergency requires immediate intervention with needle decompression. This is usually done in the second intercostal space along the mid-clavicular line, effectively converting the tension pneumothorax into a simple pneumothorax. This is followed by chest tube placement. In the case of a recurrent pneumothorax, a procedure known as pleurotesis might be performed. This procedure causes the visceral and parietal pleurae to stick together, eliminating the pleural space and thus preventing future pneumothoraces. Next, we will discuss fluid in the pleural cavity or pleural effusions. We will start by examining the different types and causes of pleural effusions, 
we will compare the characteristics of transudative, exudative, and chylothorax effusions. Starting with transudative pleural effusions, these are typically clear in appearance. The etiologies or causes include increased hydrostatic pressure, as seen in congestive heart failure, decreased oncotic pressure that occurs in conditions like nephrotic syndrome and cirrhosis, and hepatic hydrothorax, a condition where right-sided pleural effusions occur due to increased permeability of the right hemidiaphragm. Fluid analysis in transudative effusions generally shows low protein content, and none of Light's criteria are met. Moving on to exudative pleural effusions, these tend to appear cloudy. They can occur due to various etiologies, including infectious causes such as parapneumonic effusion, which is an effusion secondary to pneumonia, inflammatory conditions including collagen vascular diseases and acute pancreatitis, malignancies such as lung cancer, breast cancer and lymphoma, and esophageal rupture, also known as Borjav syndrome, which typically results in left-sided pleural effusions. The fluid analysis in exudative effusions will reveal high protein content, possibly elevated amylase, indicating the presence of saliva or the release of pancreatic enzymes as seen in esophageal rupture and acute pancreatitis, and at least one of Light's criteria is met. One important note to remember is that a pulmonary embolism can cause both transudative and exudative effusions. Finally, let's talk about chylothorax, which is an effusion that appears milky due to the presence of lymphatic fluid in the pleural space. This condition is usually the result of a ruptured thoracic duct. The fluid analysis in chylothorax will reveal elevated triglyceride levels. We mentioned Light's criteria when discussing transudative and exudative effusions, but let's further elaborate. Light's criteria are a set of laboratory parameters used to differentiate between a transudative and exudative pleural effusion. The interesting thing about Light's criteria is that you only need one of the three criteria to be met to characterize the effusion as exudative. First, the pleural effusion protein to serum protein ratio is greater than 0.5. This indicates that the protein content in the effusion is relatively high compared to the protein level in the bloodstream which is characteristic of an exudative effusion. Second, the pleural effusion LDH, that's lactate dehydrogenase, to serum LDH ratio is greater than 0.6. LDH is an enzyme found throughout the body, including in the lungs, and its presence in higher amounts in the pleural fluid can indicate disease processes that cause exudative effusions. And third, the LDH level in the pleural effusion is greater than two-thirds the upper limit of the normal serum LDH level. Now let's delve into the tests that are typically performed on pleural fluid. These tests provide the data needed to apply Light's criteria and further characterize the effusion. Firstly, the protein content is measured, which is part of Light's criteria. The LDH level is also measured, again part of Light's criteria. Cytology, or the study of cells, is performed to check for abnormal cells, such as cancer cells. The amylase level is checked. This enzyme is produced by the pancreas and salivary glands, and elevated levels in the pleural fluid can indicate certain conditions like pancreatitis or esophageal rupture. The pH of the pleural fluid is measured. A low pH can indicate a complicated parapneumonic effusion or empyema. Microbiological studies are performed to identify any infectious organisms. Lastly, a cell count with differential is conducted to identify the types and amounts of cells present in the fluid, which can point to specific causes of the effusion. Now we will turn our attention to a specific occupational lung disease, asbestosis, which can affect the pleura. 
Asbestosis is a chronic lung disease caused by the inhalation of asbestos fibers. The primary risk factor for asbestosis is occupational exposure to asbestos. The occupations that carry the highest risk include roofing, shipbuilding, plumbing, pipe fitting, and insulation work. Now it's important to note that the signs and symptoms of asbestosis can take a long time to develop, often over 20 years from the time of exposure. The symptoms include a chronic worsening cough, shortness of breath, wheezing, cyanosis, or bluish discoloration of the skin, clubbing of the fingertips, and the presence of rails or crackling sounds in the lungs. When diagnosing asbestosis, several tests may be used. A chest x-ray can reveal pleural plaques and thickening, as well as reticulonodular infiltrates, primarily affecting the lower lobes of the lungs. A CT scan of the chest might show a pattern of honeycombing in advanced cases. Pulmonary function tests typically demonstrate a restrictive pattern, indicating reduced lung volume. A biopsy, if performed, can show ferruginous bodies, which are iron-containing structures that resemble dumbbells, and can be visualized on Prussian blue staining. Management of asbestosis is primarily symptomatic. This might include bronchodilators to ease breathing and supplemental oxygen for those with advanced disease. However, there are severe complications associated with asbestosis. The most common malignancy associated with this condition is bronchogenic carcinoma. The risk of developing bronchogenic carcinoma is exponentially increased when smoking is combined with asbestos exposure. Asbestosis is also highly associated with mesothelioma, a rare but aggressive form of cancer that affects the lining of the lungs. Additionally, there's an increased risk of malignancies of the larynx, oropharynx, esophagus, biliary system, and kidneys in individuals with asbestosis. We will conclude this section by further discussing mesothelioma. As previously mentioned, mesothelioma is a rare form of cancer that develops in the mesothelium. In most cases, mesothelioma affects the pleura, the lining of the lungs. The prognosis for mesothelioma is generally poor. Symptoms typically don't appear until the disease is in advanced stages, which complicates early detection and treatment. Presentation usually involves a hemorrhagic pleural effusion, along with a cough and weight loss. One key risk factor for developing mesothelioma is exposure to asbestos, which is strongly associated. It's important to note that there's also a benign form of mesothelioma, which is unrelated to asbestos exposure. Unlike its malignant counterpart, benign mesothelioma tends to have a very good prognosis. Although benign mesothelioma can cause symptoms similar to the malignant form, it doesn't spread to other parts of the body, and its removal typically leads to a full recovery.